Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, are economic sanctions against Russia a good idea? When relations between the West and Moscow go cold, it's the Baltic states that face the deep freeze. Right now, the mercury is sub-zero, following a spate of Kremlin-backed cyber attacks and a rise in tensions in the long standoff between opposition and government in Belarus. The EU and US hope to punish Russia with a further round of tough sanctions. In June, when European leaders met for a summit, the focus was on how to handle Vladimir Putin and Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus. That ended in a tussle. France and Germany preferred open dialogue with the Kremlin. The Baltics did not. But as the Russian bear and its Belarusian cub remain in belligerent mode, is a standoff via sanctions really the best way forward? My guest this week is Estonia's Prime Minister Kaja Kallas. She leads one of the three Baltic states which sit uncomfortably snug next to the Russian border and rely heavily on NATO for protection and on the political support of the European Union. Kallas made history in January, becoming her country's first female Prime Minister. She's also the product of a political dynasty. Her grandfather was one of the country's founding fathers in 1918, and her father was also a prominent reformer after the fall of communism in the 1990s, and a later prime minister himself. Kaya Kallas is a centralist liberal presiding over a coalition government. Esconced in office in Tallinn, the Estonian capital, she's caught between competing ideas of how to square up to a rising tide of authoritarianism and how to deal with President Putin. Prime Minister Kaya Kallas, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the geopolitical situation for Estonia. It's been a particularly difficult year for all of those in political opposition to Russia. If we look at the situation in, in Belarus as an example of that, Alexei Navalny is still ailing in jail. His party's been outlawed. Why do you think events have got this far? And if indeed it is possible to influence Vladimir Putin, how would you go about it? Well, things have gone so far because we have let them go so far, because uh, Russia or Belarus only go as far as we let them. And and that's the problem from our side. I think uh, maybe our responses to uh, Russia's actions haven't been uh, strong enough before. Uh, so so therefore, they are taking up these uh, these new steps. But I'm, I'm happy that the last response was uh, very prompt and quick uh, when Belarus took the plane and took this opposition leader uh, down from the plane. Then the EU reacted very quickly. Already on Monday, uh, the sanctions were decided. 
so, so I think this is uh, this is a positive sign that we are taking these things more seriously. What we see across Europe, uh, we see uh, that uh, Russia is doing different acts, not uh, friendly acts on, on the soils of European countries. And uh, this is definitely opening some eyes of some countries that uh, maybe prior were a bit more, I wouldn't say naive, but, uh, but more optimistic regarding Russia. So I suppose you were referencing there, in the case of Mr. Protasevich and, and the response by the EU was a, a new round of sanctions against Belarus. Not everyone is convinced that that works, that, that, that it's targeted on business interests who support the regime in, in Belarus, which is very close to, to that in the Kremlin, may find ways around it, that it simply isolates people more, particularly when it affects travel and the ability of those who are more outward looking in a country to sort of get away from the ghastly authoritarians they're living with. Do you have any doubts about sanctions? I don't have any doubts about sanctions. And I would even uh, refer to uh, opposition leader uh, Dianovska, who was here just a month ago. I also asked that, what do you say against those who, who claim that sanctions will hurt Belarusian people and, and, uh, and those who want to get out of the country? Her response was that, no, actually, the sanctions are good. The sanctions are working and we should be patient. Uh, and this is same about Russia. Europe is sometimes a bit impatient in putting uh, the sanctions and then in three months' time already saying that the sanctions don't work. What we see from our intelligence and our reports tell us that, that the sanctions uh, work. Their effect of Russian GDP is 1% to 2% and therefore we should keep uh, up with them. As to Belarus, it is the same. I think uh, Lukashenko's power stays on the shoulder of police and, and armed forces. So, so if, uh, if they are still behind Lukashenko, then, then it's very hard to see the regime end. But, uh, but if, uh, you know, he doesn't have enough uh, funds to pay salaries and, and pay those forces, then, then also there might be a change in that end. There's something of a split inside the European Union about how to deal with Russia, isn't there? France and Germany at the EU summit proposed engaging in, in talks with uh, Vladimir Putin. Estonia and its Baltic partners rebuffed that proposal. It's not very popular in London or Washington either. I think Lithuanian's president said it was like trying to engage the bear to keep the pot of honey safe, which is a very good and colourful metaphor. But people might be wondering, listening to this podcast why doesn't dialogue with Russia work? Why isn't it a good idea? Because it is has been the tried and tested way of dealing with Moscow throughout the Cold War. It takes two to dangle. So dialogue means that there is speakers on, on both sides. And what we have seen so far is that even if there is this wish to have a dialogue, then it's very difficult to have a dialogue with a country that uh, approaches different European member states by exploding the factory in, in Czech Republic or, or poisoning people on the grounds of European countries. So it's very hard to see that uh, doing this diversion acts actually refers to having a good uh, good dialogue. I actually like a quote uh, of uh, Gary Gasparov who recently wrote, uh, history has demonstrated time and again that appeasing a dictator only convinces him you are too weak to oppose him, provoking further aggression. And coming from the Soviet times, we 
uh, still remember those times. So, so we are uh, absolutely understanding what it means. And it's not that if we take a step back, that maybe they will take a step back too. No, they will step uh, uh, further because we let them. And this is problem. But doesn't that mean that uh, Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron uh, are either, as I think uh, Estonia's former president said, clueless or have learnt nothing from 80 years of history? Where does that leave you as a fairly ardent pro-European if you feel that some of the, the biggest countries in Europe are on the wrong track when it comes to proposing an open dialogue with Mr Putin? We have agreed uh, in Europe on five principles, uh, which uh, we base our uh, our uh, communication with uh, with Russia on, and these were agreed already in 2016. and And those principles say that yes, we can have you know people to people contacts, but Russia has to respect Minsk agreement. So the difference is uh, that if we say now that Europe is having a summit uh, with EU leaders and, and Russia or uh, Putin on the other side, then for Russia, it is more of internal politics issue, which means that he can show in Russia that, you know, all the, all the acts that he has taken against the opposition, poisoning Navalny, you know, stepping over human rights, you know, they mean nothing to the European leaders because they have just forgotten those things. And it's not that it will make a big difference on, the, on, on European uh, scale, but it makes a huge difference inside Russia. It gives a totally wrong signal. And if we have agreed on conditions, what Russia has to fulfill before we have those high-level summits, then if they haven't fulfilled the conditions, then a question comes to our side. What has changed? And, and this means that we just say that, you know, these things are okay. But I think we all agree that these things are not okay. Aggression in Ukraine, Georgia, Eastern Partnership countries, this is still not okay. And Russia has not demonstrated anything to, you know, step back from that. But it's just in the position that you're in, where you're generally very supportive of the European Union, are you not worried that the drift of opinion in France and Germany and even at the leadership level is a bit away from that very kind of hard, firm edge that you have to your argument to, well, maybe it's better to engage, maybe it's better not to annoy Russia. And there is that you know, that mood a lot in the politics there. And, and frankly, a lot of populations will think that sounds very reasonable. Uh, well, uh, what we have uh, agreed on the European level is that we are united uh, in uh, talking to Russia. And, and that principle is, is very uh, valuable because uh, uh, we have to stick together. Like uh, we have our worries with Russia, but some of the European countries have their worries with, uh, with some other countries. But if we stick together, we are stronger. Coming up with these ideas, I understand where they come from. And one of these arguments is that, you know, sanctions are not working. Let's try with be uh, good people and not punish them. But... Uh, it hasn't it hasn't worked uh, and and again what i want to emphasize what we see from our intelligence that sanctions really work you know but how can you say they really work Ms. callis because i'm looking at right now at a quote from vladimir putin after that uh, geneva summit uh, with president biden who says pretty much well no matter what sanctions are applied no matter what they frighten us with russia is developing 
economic sovereignty is increasing, defence capability has reached a high level. That bit is uh, definitely true, I think, in terms of external analysis, the economists uh, and others of, of Russia's defence capability. I'm not sure what working would mean for you vis-a-vis Russian sanctions. Help me out. Yeah, it means uh, 1% to 2% of GDP uh, that, uh, that actually they have lost due to the, due to the sanctions. And it's, it's still a great loss. And, and, you know, coming from the Soviet Union, uh, I remember even I, as I was a child during those times, but uh, I, even I remember all these uh, slogans of, of saying how, how well the uh, Soviet Union did and the economy did, but it wasn't really true. So, uh, so when it comes to defense budgets, uh, that is all very true that they are investing more and more. But what comes to uh, you know regular people, then what we see in Russia is that uh, more and more people are not satisfied with the way that Putin is is running the country because people their lives are not better, and and if their lives are not better, they are also uh, more demanding. So what has happened before was that if these tensions grow, then they need a successful, small successful war to show that, you know, Russia is is still powerful. But uh, I don't think it entirely works uh, anymore because uh, people are feeling on their skin that, uh, that uh, the life uh, is not uh, better for them. A criticism of the last US President Donald Trump was that some NATO members are not pulling their fair share when it comes to defence spending. Do you share that concern, given that Baltic states have reached the uh, agreed target of 2% of GDP? Other prominent members, Germany, Spain, Italy among them, haven't. And as we come out of the pandemic, which we'll turn to in a moment, it may well be that defence spending is not going to be the most popular use of of funds and resources? Well, this uh, 2% we have agreed uh, on NATO's level that everybody um, invests in their uh, defence of uh, 2% of GDP. And and it's true that we have... um, kept our promise and, and invested this in, in defense. But of course, we are in the geographical position uh, as we are. And for some European countries, you know, defense issues are not that big issue uh, on political level. So, uh, of course, it's much harder to explain it to your people, uh, whereas you have other worries because you have limited amount of, uh, of money still that you can put to one or the other place. So, like, um, like who was the president who's who said that uh, don't talk to me about your priorities, but show me your budget and I will tell you what your priorities are. Considering the COVID crisis and and all the uh, places that uh, also demands uh, demand dif- uh, additional funds, I can politically uh, understand that. But uh, but uh, what is important is that how these defense budgets are used and and whether these um, NATO members are also um, able and and, and willing to provide their troops to uh, countries where defence is more of a, of a problem or security is a bigger issue. Uh, so the cooperation uh, still works quite uh, quite well. Uh, do you have doubts about that? I mean, if we, we look at that commitment of the attack on one as an attack uh, uh, against all fundamental to NATO, the Baltic states obviously probably the most exposed uh, in terms of a potential military threat. Not always, I think, now, I think, unquestioned among many uh, people in the, in the West. Would you really go to war for 
Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia. Do you have doubts? No, I don't have doubts. And and the last NATO summit, actually, uh, President Biden started with that, saying that Article 5 has been used only once. And that was uh, uh, because U.S. needed help. So that he's telling to to his people back home that uh, don't ever forget that, uh, that uh, these people, their defense forces came to our help when we asked and said that now it's Article 5, we consider this uh, attack on, on US and everybody followed. So, so they have their responsibility and we don't have doubts, uh, doubts about that. When President Biden met with Vladimir Putin in June, the headline issue was cyber attacks, Russian cyber attacks. Front of mind for the US, uh, there appeared to have been another bout of them in the run-up to the 4th of July, so it obviously didn't put, uh, put them off that much. The big one was colonial pipeline attack disrupting fuel supplies to the East Coast. How much does this worry you that it is a problem that isn't going away, despite a lot of criticism and sabre-rattling uh, on Russia? It is still something that Moscow is prepared to underwrite. Um, well, uh, cybersecurity is a big issue to us uh, because uh, we uh, just were uh, members of the UN Security Council and we also had the first uh, cyber uh, security event on the UN uh, level uh, talking about these issues. Uh, so, so this is a very important uh, part. Uh, for us, it is important that uh, countries also follow uh, the international uh, rule of international law um, in in the cyber space and and this is applying also to China and to to Russia uh, but also we have the NATO uh, cybersecurity center here in Tallinn uh, where uh, where we uh, try to you know uh, share the best practices, develop our our um, uh, capabilities in, th- in this regard, because it's definitely a rising uh, rising threat uh, that we have to deal with. Let's move to the pandemic. Uh, Estonia is in a rather better place uh, now, uh, with recorded daily cases in, in double figures. There was a moment earlier this year when infection rates were very high indeed, and, and around the second highest in. In Europe, you yourself tested positive for the virus and you'd only been in office a a short while then. What do you think went wrong and what have you learned from it? Uh, well, uh, those were very difficult times. Uh, we took over um, the government on the 26th of January, and and um, uh, you know the previous government uh, who stepped down um, didn't really um, give us uh, the leverage. What I mean by this is that uh, when they had the last government meeting on the 15th of uh, of January, they lifted some of the restrictions, so that by the time that we took office, the number were uh, well, numbers were going up, uh, but also what uh, was underestimated here was the effect of the, of the so-called British variant or the uh, Alpha variant, uh, because it was more uh, contagious than the previous was. So, so it went up really, uh, really fast. Uh, but um, the good part was that we got it under control pretty uh, fast, and and the numbers dropped uh, uh, really uh, quickly as well. Uh, what we have learned from that is that you know uh, we have to uh, you know vac- vaccinate and take our people out of the uh, risk. 
what we also learned is that our health system, uh, our healthcare system is uh, pretty strong. So uh, we, uh, the rate of, of uh, people uh, dying uh, of COVID was the lowest in Europe, although the numbers were high. Uh, so, so um, you know, that's the positive thing that our healthcare system uh, really didn't, didn't collapse, although we were already thinking about asking help from other countries. Britain is uh, looking towards a big opening up. Are you tempted to go the same way or do you think Boris Johnson is taking a risk? Uh, Well, uh, we have had quite the open life here all, 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 all the time, almost. Uh, so, so for us, um, uh, the question is, of course, when we get, uh, you know, more and more people out of out of the risk. If we take now that over fifty percent of adult population has been vaccinated, plus we have uh, people over hundred thousand people who have uh, antibodies, including my myself. Uh, so, so um, you know, there is this. Uh, balance because uh, you know in the overall picture the majority of people have to restrict themselves to protect the minority of people so when we have offered a majority or the old population uh, possibility to vaccinate uh, then uh, you have offered this uh, um, uh, possibility to protect yourself so if you don't use that then the question comes uh, how far uh, will it will we go in order to protect those who doesn't don't want to protect themselves and and restrict the uh, the the majority so it's it's a big balancing act let's talk a bit more more broadly, or perhaps best known as the newest member, I think you're still the newest member of a well-established uh, club in the region with Finland, Norway, Denmark, Lithuania, Iceland, all led by women. Later this year, the most significant female politician of the 21st century, at least so far, uh, Angela Merkel, will stand down. What lessons do you take personally uh, from her long stint in the chancellorship in, in Germany? Do you think that's a, a one-off or do you think you can imagine yourself or other female leaders being around uh, as long as Merkel? Oh, well, uh, this is uh, this is a very good question. I think when I've, I've, um, I've seen Angela Merkel in EU summits, then I really value her, her way of uh, doing politics. I mean, uh, she's always looking for a compromise and trying to listen to others and, and also having this historical oversight of, of all, all of those years when she has been in office. And she's very compromise-oriented which means that she takes into account uh, not only what what Germany wants, but she also listens to other countries' worries and and tries to understand and take them on board uh, so that nobody's uh, uh, left behind. And I think that's... uh, I don't think that was quite true with Brexit, (laughs) was it? Britain was kind of left behind and didn't feel it got much engagement on the compromise out of Angela Merkel. Well, let's not go to the Brexit discussion, but uh, but I would say that uh, Britain had very strong views on on very many issues, and plus you had very many exemptions of, of all those European dealings. So you were already out. So so when you were leaving EU, then the question was, uh, what you are really leaving because you are already out. <laughs> Doesn't sound like you're very sympathetic, as you say. We we won't we won't go down that particular rabbit hole to, today. <laughs> I just couldn't resist throwing it in sitting in London. No, uh, I, I, 
what I want to emphasize is that for, for us, Britain leaving was a very sad event because Brits are um, good allies. So we have very same views on, on different topics, what we discuss uh, in, in the European uh, Union or how we approach markets or, or economy for that matter. So for us, it's definitely a loss that Britain left. In overall, if you so much wanted to leave, so who could uh, stop you? I'm just interested in the way that we perceive female leaders. Uh, We don't seem to entirely get away from the stereotypes. I'm probably as guilty as anyone when I I, I write about or broadcast about female leaders. The questions we we ask, we maybe assume uh, more empathy. We talk a lot about the pandemic and you've referenced, I think, in some of your speeches, the pandemic producing more strong men or strong men authoritarian reactions. I do rather wonder, is is it necessarily such a a gendered thing. Could we imagine a a strong woman? We might get one actually in in France with Marine Le Pen. What would you feel about this kind of tendency to attribute certain tendencies, emotions, ways of doing things to women? I don't think I have uh, said that authoritarian men, I said that authoritarian powers, because what I see uh, in the COVID pandemic, uh, when, when you know, numbers are rising and people's angst is growing, then, then people want somebody to look up to who has all the solutions, saying that, you know, we do this, we close the borders, we do this, and very strong actions. That doesn't mean that it is a man who or a woman, it can't be either or. But it, it means that people demand this uh, strong power to say how things are so that they feel more uh, secure. But I wouldn't say that there is this uh, gender difference. If you look at the world leaders and their dealings with COVID, uh, it's, it's not really, you can't draw a line uh, based on gender. I think I've uh, once said in the past that your style, at least your style of communication, of course, your very fluent English, in which we can only uh, compliment you, does remind me a, a bit of, of someone, uh, someone our listeners might know from, from television, a fictional character, I should say, Birgitta Neuburg in the Danish TV drama Borgen. I hope you take that as a compliment. And if you do have any time off to watch a box set, a Nordic or perhaps a Baltic one, what is your favourite? What, what do you watch to relax? Well, uh, I haven't I haven't uh, watched uh, for for a long time, but I've watched Borgen, and and I actually I really love The Crown, so uh, I watched all of it uh, on Netflix. So uh, when uh, when I was sick with COVID, so you'd rather be the Queen than than uh, Prime Minister Denmark, but. <laughs> At least, at least in your fantasy. <laughs> no, I mean, Borgen was here, it was already years ago when it was uh, popular. And it was actually, it's, it's a very interesting um, topic. Um, during that time, we had a series of our own regarding politicians. And it was a fun series where all the politicians were young men and kind of stupid. So people are making fun of those. And at the same time, you know, you had the Denmark series of Borgen where they showed how difficult this job really is and what kind of you know um, what kind of uh, decisions you have to make and, and choices in your life as well when you are also a mother um, and and when you look at um, the politicians 
Denmark has so many good female politicians. One of my friends asked me, is it that we have this humorous series of politicians being stupid and therefore we have uh, such characters here a reality? Or is it that first comes the series and then also come a lot of good Danish female politicians? So I don't know which way it is, but it's uh, interesting. Yeah, art, art life and political drama is a very good point. I mean, do people start to imitate or West, the West Wing was so influential in the US. Is there a style then that, that comes with it? I know you've got to go. I'm going to squeeze the last answer out of you because I, I know I've got a lot of listeners interested in this. And it, you used to spend a lot of time on the golf course. I remember you saying that you once spent too much time on the golf course that you thought, I really want to crack on with other things and I'm going to go into politics seriously. You must have learned some lessons from golf. Do any of them apply to the job that you're now in? Patience and, uh, and not letting yourself be distracted on anything, taking away your attention on the things that you should have the attention on. And a decent swing. Yeah, and decent swing, of course. <laughs> Kaya Callas, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Lovely to have you with us. Thank you. All the best. And we'd love to know what you think and what life lessons you might have taken away with you from the tea. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. Last week, I asked for your book recommendations following our editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton Beddoes, conversation with the Director General of the World Trade Organization, Dr Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala. Thank you to everyone who wrote in, and especially to Peter Hayden, who suggested Sleepwalking into Global Famine by Benny Dembitsa. No doubt Dr Ngozi will put that straight to the top of her pile. If you haven't listened to that episode, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Prime Minister Kalla spoke about the UK's exit from the European Union in her interview. And The Economist has also looked into the fate of EU citizens in post-Brexit Britain. Do head to our website to have a look at that. And while you're at it, why don't you become a subscriber today? For our best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer today was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 